I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Ali. I'm going to see your next fight. You're going to see the next one? Well, you better get there very early. You better get there very early because that man's going down. If he talk a little job, he's going down in five. He talk a little more, I might drop him in four. You think we'll have more fun? Do it in round one. Oh, yeah. Hey, hold on. I'm doing the rhyming. Cassius, Cassius, the people really look up to you. You plan on being a champ like Joe Lewis? Well, yeah, I'm gonna be the people's champ. Uh, not like Joe Lewis, you know, not exactly. Okay, Cassius. Mr. Clay. My name is not Clay. Clay is the name of the people that own my ancestors, and I no longer want to be called by that slave name. I am Cassius X. Minister Malcolm. Muhammad Ali, born Cassius Marcellus Clay, January 17th, 1942, was an American professional boxer, activist, entertainer, and philanthropist, nicknamed The Greatest. He is widely regarded as one of the most significant and celebrated figures of the 20th century. It's a very good Howard Cassell. And as one of the greatest boxers of all time. Ali was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. It's very important that you say Louisville, it's not Louisville. He began training as an amateur boxer at age 12. He lived to 2016 and the age of 74. And this movie is about the most important decade of his life. This is a very special episode because it is dealing with a film of a kind that we don't usually cover, sports biopics. But this one was massively massively, almost incalculably influential upon me. And I, I rarely talk about it, and yet, and yet. Listen up, folks. This one's going to be hard, by the way. We're going to be talking about a lot of racial stuff, and some folks are going to start feeling really uncomfortable, and that is understandable. In terms of informing on my worldview and of several themes and characters in New Century, this is... Because I have so many influences, you can't really call any one of them a ro the Rosetta Stone, but it's a Rosetta Stone. Michael Mann's 2001 film isn't just a portrait of a man, it is a long breath in and out over an entire crucial decade in American history. We begin with a man christened Cassius Clay in his early 20s, training up to fight Sonny Liston in May 1964. And this is arguably the most significant sportsman who ever lived. A legend in his own time. You don't get to be this without being something special. And the first 10 minutes of this film leave you in no doubt that we aren't just looking at Ali himself, the world around him. America, specifically black America during the civil rights movement. Sam Cooke performs live to an adoring audience, coming off like a gospel preacher, just drawing in everybody's attention, feeding the crowd, getting everybody up to their feet. Clay, as a child, is pushed towards the back of the bus and spots the horrendous pictures of the mutilated, murdered Emmett Till on the front page of a newspaper and the black reader frostily shakes the pages to emphasize the tyranny that has taken place. He's like, look, kid. He's not like, get your eyes off my newspaper. He is helping to wake up a kid to how fucked the world is. 
He's trying to share and connect that bafflement and horror. Yeah. The tyranny that has taken place, that has been inflicted upon the African-American community by vicious white men, empowered and protected by the system that is not broken, but functioning just fine if you're the ones being protected. The older Cassius watches Malcolm X preach his own brand of rude awakening to those who will listen. His drive is that there is an idea that if we all play nice within the African-American community and try not to rock the boat, that the white man will allow us a safe place in his world. This is a fantasy. The world around this community is excluding at best, predatory at worst. Malcolm is played by Mario Van Peebles in the performance of his career. I would agree. I, his performance as Malcolm X is, for me, probably one of the best things about this film. Yeah. It's a small role, but it's incredible. It's so powerful. Ali has a bunch of different mentors, but X is essential in this for allowing him to not fool himself. Yeah, and one of the key things he says in this, and uh, this is, you know, um, I don't want to overcredit this the scriptwriter, because I'm assuming this came straight from a Malcolm X speech, but the line about uh, be work within the law, be respectful, carry yourself in a respectful way, you make sure they don't put their hands on anyone else. The significance of the fact that he says, you see they don't put their hands on anyone else, it's not about revenge for you, it's about protecting the rest of your community from them. So those of you who think you came here today, to hear us tell you, like these Negro leaders do, that your times will just get better. That we shall overcome someday. I say to you, you came to the wrong place. Because your times will never get better unless you make them better. Those of you who think you came here to hear us tell you to turn the other cheek to the brutality of the white man and this system of injustice that's in place right here in America. You think you're gonna come here and hear us tell you to go out there and beg for a place at their lunch counter? Again, I say you came to the wrong place. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the South. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the North. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches you to obey the law, to carry yourselves in a respectable way, in a proud Afro-American way. But at the same time, we teach you if anyone puts their hand on you, brother, you do your best to see they don't put their hand on anybody else. Again. The screenplay was by Michael Mann himself, uh, Eric Roth, Stephen J. Ravel, and Christopher Wilkinson. Those are not names I recognize, but there is an authenticity to it. It doesn't feel. The way man films this, it feels like he was actually there with a camera at the time, just handheld capturing everything. It feels more documentarian than just biopic. Because I mean, we've, we've seen a whole bunch of like musical uh, artist biopics where they sort of like film them throughout their childhood and they show those bits of that. It, it, <clears throat> it could just be the quality of the cameras he uses, the what, what he chooses to keep in the frame, but it feels like you're never thrown out of it and, and, and you think to yourself, well, that's very cinematic movie style. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's moments, 
like at the end of the rumble in the jungle, just as he's sort of turning, a butterfly flies past in slow motion. It's absolutely beautiful. But that's one of the few concessions to, I suppose, stylization. Mm. I think there's probably two things that contribute most significantly to that sense that it is a, a capturing of a moment rather <clears throat> than a, a creation of a moment that the, as you say, the camera motion is very naturalistic. There's a lot of moving around and it gives you a sense of an eye line, that you're seeing things from the point of view of somebody who was stood in the room watching what was going on, uh, rather than being very fixed point. There's even a couple of um, scenes within the fights where he uses, uh, a, the stunt performer has a, a like a GoPro or, or whatever the equivalent of the time was. In 2000? On shoulder. Yeah so that they can capture what that fight looked like from inside. Also, ironically, you mentioned music biopics, the way he uses music in this. I mean, man is superb when it comes to the application of music to his narrative. I don't always agree with the type of music he chooses, Manhunter, but... Um... Oh, that was a one-off. <laughs> Everyone was into Tangerine Dream in those I days. I know, I know. For some um, reason. But it's it's not well with that one, it's like it's not that there's anything essentially wrong with wow, it. It's just, wow, wow, there's wow. so much other music you could have used, Michael. But um it's the fact that he Little Elliot Goldenthal could totally have pulled something absolutely, together. Absolutely, absolutely. But he it's he doesn't frame the scenes around the music, he picks the right music to go with the scene. Yeah. So you don't get the feeling that it's being paced to fit with something that's designed to capture a certain mo um, emotion, it's a blending of this is what happened, now what music would go with that? And again, that it gives you a sense of being in it. It's that feeling when you're a, a, I don't know, when you're a kid and you're on a train and you're listening to music that kind of seems to be narrating your journey or something along those lines. And it, it really has an immediacy to it and feels like it's putting you there. The first 10 minutes are really extraordinary because they're really, they're key to a movie. Like, you, 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 this is how you establish what's going on. And it just holds. You know the way that Paul Thomas Anderson just holds music and sequences that just keep running together mm -hmm. and they're all scored by this stuff. But you got Sam Cooke going through various songs in this club and various movements and talking with the crowd while you're seeing Ali train, while you're seeing Ali as a kid, while you're seeing um, Bundini Brown in introduce himself and it, 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 it almost muffles the speech to keep the music playing to say it's not so much important as to what they're saying as to what we're seeing and how we're feeling about the film as it takes place it's much more immersion in in the time and the place over the screenplay which in doing so makes you feel more like the screenplay is just authentically what would have been said at the time as opposed to you must hear these words. Mm, yeah. And, and yet at the same time some of the most amazing speeches delivered in a film are in this. Mm, yeah, and I know that they are they're altered and they're rearranged and there are things where Ali is portrayed as having said something that was only ever heard about in like a newspaper quote or something. So the, the framework of what was going on when he said that and how precisely that is to what he said, we can't possibly know. Some condensing was required Absolutely. to get it into these 10 years in an order that felt like a journey. Yeah. yeah. 
so that, that things set up at the beginning would pay off at the end, yeah. as opposed a, to, I wonder what that was about. Well, we just filmed everything that happened. There's a sequentializing In real time. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a sequentializing to it which is consistent with looking back at your own memories. You don't remember things exactly the way they happened. You remember things the way your memory has framed them in order for them to make sense for you. And then as Sam Cooke peaks with Bring It On Home To Me, which was in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, by the way, Gamora and uh, Peter dancing, uh, we meet Cassius just as he is weighed and measured before he fights Liston. And I'm going to call him Cassius just a few more times to illustrate that this was the turning point before he abandoned that name. It's uncomfortable for me to call him that, but I'll do it for historical accuracy. The first of multiple historical matches depicted in this film and immediately it is easy to see that Will Smith is also playing the performance of his career. Now, some of you can probably name me five or six Mario Van Peebles films and one or two of them that he's really good in. There's a lot of you that could name a lot of Will Smith performances, all of which are great. This is the best. I'm gonna go ahead and say it empirically. I remember there was a, a, a a guy I was talking to on Twitter, we were talking about charisma, and he mentioned Ali, and I said, yep, Will Smith totally captured that. And he went, ha, Will Smith. And I was like, um, no, you really need to see just like a clip of this. And then I sent him just this bit that I'm about to play for you. And then he came back with, yeah, all right, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you ain't no champ. You a chump. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Rumble, young man, rumble. Y'all want to lose y'all money? Then you better it on Sonny. He know I'm great. He will fall in eight. Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll whoop you right now. Two ten and a half. Two ten and a half. The challenger. Cash is played. Two hundred and ten and a half pounds. Man, you showed us right. <laughs> oh, ugly bear. Come on, let's go. You got all these folks fooled. I ain't scared of you. I ain't scared of you. 218. 218. Sonny Liston, the champion of the world. 218 pounds. Pounds of what? Pounds are ugly. That man's so ugly, when he sweat, the sweat run backwards off his forehead just to stay away from his face. <laughs> Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll turn you into a rug. Keep talking. I'm going to fuck you up. I'll crawl out of the ring and take the first jet airplane out the country. Is that a promise, Mr. Clay? You're gonna be the first one eating his words. Cassius, Cassius you're a seven to one underdog. He talks with his fists. What do you say? You scared of him? I'm gonna give Sonny Liston talking lessons, boxing lessons, and falling down lessons. Cassius, sir, are you a black Muslim? Pat Putnam says in the Miami Herald. Man's religion is his own business. What kind of questions? Angelo, tell Mr. me. Mr. Clay, me. the fact is, Malcolm X was in town, then he left. Was that so he wouldn't embarrass you? Cassius, yeah, how Liston doesn't like you. Really can't stand you. Says he wants to kill you. Howard Cosell, you ain't nothing but an instigator. Man, how you get that way? Cassius, now you're being truculent. Well, if it's good, I'm mad. <laughs> you next. Soon as I'm done with Sonny Liston, I'm fighting Howard Cosell. Y'all right that I do like being called succulent, though. I meant truculent. Not the truculent, unfeminine scrapper you seem so intent on convincing the world you are. <laughs>
Whatever truculent means, if it's good, I'm that. It's not good. Some people are already calling you Abby the Krabby. I, I agree. I think this is absolutely the performance of his career. And I, I don't normally tend to respond well to biopics, especially when the emphasis is on, let's make this actor really, 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 really look like that person with makeup and fake noses hair and, and teeth, glasses, hair and, hair and teeth, exactly. And it doesn't... You cannot negotiate with a tiger! Yes, that's one of the ones I was thinking of. When you um... have an Oscar rammed up your fundaments! <laughs> Good Lord. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it really sounded like Scrooge there as well. Will the, Smith. The, yeah, Will Smith's performance. It's, it's not about replicating the exact look of the person, although he captures uh, a lot of the hints and subtleties about how Ali carried himself, about the way he held his head. There's a certain way he looks at people, especially when he's fighting them. You never forget that it's Will Smith. Yeah, but you don't need to forget yeah. that it's Will Smith. He, But he, what he does is carry the essence of Ali as a character and in such a way that he can differentiate between Ali in performance yeah. when he's at his press conferences and um, Ali in person when he's relating to people in real life and the gradations in between because sometimes he's with people that he performs for just as part of his everyday experience and sometimes he's with people where he's more I would say authentic but it is difficult to put your finger on when that is and that is a subtle thing to put across and it really impressed me the way uh, Smith managed to do this the the key thing that I think he got so so well was when he plays Ali in the fights. Because obviously it's not actually Will Smith getting the shit kicked out of him um, for the, the duration of the fights. But the way he responds, the way he is able to show the reaction to a hit, the uh, intention behind a, a drive or a move or a, a shift or a trick or whatever, what he, what he got across to me is how much fighting was Ali's creative act. That is the thing that made him truly who he was, how he, he came to the fore of, of putting together the way he could move, the way he could talk, even though he's not really talking during the fights, but it's expressed in his, uh, his you can see him planning, you can see him, um, when there's a, a, a mocking going on in his in his mind, even if he's not saying it out loud, and when that shifts to, oh fuck, there was the line and I just stepped over it. It's, like I said, it's a creative process and for Smith to be able to show that through his creative process, which is acting and performance, made it a really unique thing to see. Something that you wouldn't have been able to see even if you'd watched Ali's actual fight, because that's not how sports events are captured. Yeah, you can't get... <clears throat> they never got that close to the ring, although watching them on old newsreels is quite eye-opening, just to actually see these, these... Not just this man, these men work. I really have to credit the other boxers that he was up against. He wouldn't be this good if they weren't also this fantastic. Like, they were truly dedicated men. But I mean sincerely that I would love to watch Will Smith try to better this. 
but what we are witness to here is an explosive personality wrapping itself around another explosive personality and dancing in perfect time and rhythm with the real life Ali. How he spoke, how he moved, the way he looked, his charisma that would fill stadiums. And Smith pulled it off in that single first scene that I showed you. Every single moment after that, I was wholly engaged from my first viewing, and I always am every subsequent time. How is it possible to fight the way Ali fought, talk the way he talked, even just those looks he gave, those striking, bold, defiant looks in a world that wanted him to shut up, fall in line, and keep his head down? It's a world that tells us, by action, what happens to uplifting, proud, black leaders who inspire communities, get people thinking, spread self-respect, energize. Malcolm X is murdered before our eyes. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is murdered before our eyes. Really, the only reason Ali survived this period of his life was that he was too fast. The bullets wore themselves out chasing him. That or he was just as lucky as hell because you don't get to be a prominent black figure critical of the US government during the mid-20th century and live. Shit, you don't get to be a black kid who might have a hairbrush and live in 2021. And he wasn't just known in America, he was beloved worldwide. He was more well-known than Jesus because they didn't have cameras back then. Things are getting much better, but I always wonder when I went to church on Sundays. I've always been one to, I'm not just a boxer. I do a lot of reading, a lot of studying, I ask questions, I go out, travel these countries, I watch how their people live, and I learn. And I always ask my mother, I said, Mother, how come is everything white? I said, why is Jesus white with blonde and blue eyes? Angels are white, Pope, and Mary, and every, even the angels. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, well, what happened to all the black angels they took the pictures? <laughs> I said, so anyway, I was always curious. I always wondered why. You know, Tarzan is the king of the jungle in Africa. He was white. <laughs> white man. I saw this white man swinging around Africa with a diaper on, hollering, oh! Do you all see Tarzan over here? Right. Tarzan? And all the Africans, so he's beating them up and breaking the lion's jaw. And here's Tarzan talking to the animals. And the Africans have been there for centuries, and he yet can't talk to the animals. Only Tarzan can talk to the animals. I always wonder why Miss America was always white. All the beautiful brown women in America, beautiful suntans, beautiful shapes, all tight complexions, but she always was white. And Miss World was always white. And Miss Universe was always white. And then they got some stuff called White House cigars, white swan soap, king white soap, white cloud tissue paper, <clears throat> white rain hair rinse, white tornado flow wax. Everything was white. And the angel food cake was the white cake, and the devil food cake was the chocolate cake. <laughs> I said, Mama, why is everything white? I always wondered, you know, and, and the president lived in the White House. <laughs> And Mary had a little lamb, his feet as white as snow, and snow white. And everything was white. Santa Claus was white. And everything bad was black. The little ugly duckling was a black duck. And the black cat was the bad luck. And if I threaten you, I'm going to blackmail you. I said, Mama, why don't they call it white male? They lie, too. I was always curious. And then, and this is when I knew something was wrong. But they, there is a lot in this about how the 
assassination isn't the only way to take somebody down when you're afraid of what they might spread to other people. And the, I mean, the CIA were spying on Malcolm X, they were spying on Martin Luther King, and they have a, a hand in calling Ali up to the draft, knowing that he is likely to refuse because they want to try and diminish him. This film lit a fire in me. It showed me up close and personal the unfairness, the inequality, the cruelty and the prejudice. It made me think about Malcolm, about Martin, about Ali. It made me focus on the African-American story from, from roots to now and off into the future. It made that a clear injustice that I wanted to spend my time opposing. And years after seeing this movie, I would write a story of a struggling black family in the highest places of power in an alternate 19th century, a crazy dream world where America would somehow let black genius help the nation at an early stage. It made me realize that to be colorblind wouldn't help anyone. You have to be aware or you can't be an ally. As unpleasant as it is to immerse yourself in this, that awareness and that changing the way you react will make you a better person sadder wiser angrier but more alive one who's willing to listen willing to speak and say things that sometimes people don't want to hear sticking up for the right people when clay fights liston we get to see him first intimidate his opponent with pleasing obnoxious rhyming and showboating which is met with a brick wall of loud conversational killing and short anger by the far more blunt liston and it is hard not to feel sorry for anyone who ever went up against this man not only was ali beyond gifted in the boxing ring he could destroy you with words on the outside and do it in such a way that all you could possibly do would be to save up that anger and let it out, utilizing the best tactics you could plan and improvise. Because who talks back to Ali? Who has the kind of wit to contend with someone like this? It is so far above and beyond the remit of what a pugilist is supposed to be expected to do. Your manager, usually your white manager, tells the world how things are going to be. You stand there and look mean and maybe you talk a little shop about your training regimen and how you think you may be able to fight your opponent. What we have here is less the future of boxing as the entire basis for WWF wrestling. The drama and the mouthing off every wrestler Vince McMahon was able to snare via contract into working for his modern day circus. Every one of them was expected to have a little Ali in their TV facing personality and none achieved this better than Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who managed to embody this amazing combination of personality and mouth and skill and physicality, that swagger, that showmanship, that sense of watching someone special work and not only perform what was expected of them, but achieve something closer to art. This is gonna be the most brutal match The Rock has ever been in. The dangerousest match The Rock has ever been in. The Hell in a Cell. And it doesn't matter, Kevin Kelly, what you call it. Whether it's called a Hell in a Cell, a Rage in a Cage, Penis in Uranus, the only thing that matters is that The Rock is going in this Sunday night to do exactly what he does best, lay it the smack it down, and get back The Rock's WWE title. WWE what now? And even if The Rock has gotta beat Kurt Angle, which means 
I'm gonna drink a big glass of milk. Eat some chocolate chip cookies, and then maybe I'll take three Viagra. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. That's why he's a massive film star. It's not that he was just the best wrestler. By no means was he the best wrestler. But he had something that just grabs you. Perdões pra ele. Quem ganharia a luta? O Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali? Manito wants to know who you think would win a fight between Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali. Ali, hands down. Mas o Mike Tyson é muito forte. He says, what about Tyson's power? Tell him Ali would have done to Tyson what he did to Foreman in Africa. Ah, Rumble, Rumble in the jungle. Well, Ali was too smart. Ali é muito esperto. Too smart, too fast, would have used his jabs. Bam, bam! Faria isso. Would have danced. Dançando. Would have played with his mind. Before you know it, bam! Left to the body, bam! Right to the head. Down goes Tyson. Float like butterfly. Sting like bee. Float like butterfly, sting like bee. I grew up loving his showmanship, loving his, um, his humanity, his humility, loving his athletic prowess, loving his coolness um, and his swag. When I was a rookie in the WWE, 1996, we were at a big function and no one knew who I was and had, you know one of those things where I had my own name tag you know like hello I am Rocky Maivia and Ali was sitting down and uh, I said I'd love to go over and say hello to him so I went over to him and um, uh, introduced myself and um, as I was pulling away he kind of pulled me back in and he whispered um, can you rumble <laughs> and I, I said yeah I think I can yes he's like oh, okay cool so, cut to 1998, I, I started calling myself the People's Champion in honor of him. Yep. Um, when I was wrestling in Louisville, Kentucky, his family came to watch me wrestle, and um, I talked to his wife at that time, and I said, please tell Muhammad, it's only out of respect that I call myself that, and I'd stop it right now if he doesn't like it. And she goes, oh no, he loves it. Awesome. You, okay. Yeah, he wants you to call yourself that. So. That's why. Okay. I, well, that's yeah, I got, we got, we got directors and producers saying we got to go to break now. I'm not right. leaving. But yeah, so, that's what I'm saying. It's easy for them to say in that control room. Like I ain't cutting the rock. Yeah. I ain't cutting the He's rock. He's telling off. Ali story. You know what I'm saying? Like what y'all think this is, man? Put <laughs> me out there in harm's way. I could tell by the way you guys are like, mm -hmm. like, uh huh. Like, yep. like yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh -huh. Mr. Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly like you said, that this is Ali's art. As Clay dances around Liston, Mann chooses to play modern day music, which keeps things feeling real and relevant. In this case, it was Memory Gospel by Moby. This music tells you at a certain point that what you are watching in motion is poetry. And the only other time it's used in the film is over Ali spouting actual poetry. And when he starts to win the addition of a piece of music called Set Me Free by Dungeon East and Wild Peach, this tells you he's about to win, but in a way that, rather than killing tension, reaffirms the joy of seeing this man make his art. It's like Bob Ross's music. 
After the Liston fight, Clay changes his name to Cassius X, rejecting the slave name of his ancestors. He gets involved with the Nation of Islam, prompting the full name change to Muhammad Ali. And the film does not seem to be particularly warm towards the people Ali dealt with in the Nation of Islam. He's told very firmly how to live, what kind of wife to take, and while these strictures do preoccupy him, there is a lack of intimacy with the multiple sections throughout the film that we get to see of this, as the Honorable Elijah Mohammed seems reticent to give too much of himself on camera. We are left to merely speculate on the positives and negatives of this organization, but it is absolutely and entirely understandable that in rejecting American and Eurocentric Christianity, a push towards African-derived Islamic faith would provide a sense of agency and self-empowerment for African-Americans like Ali. Malcolm is suspended from the organization, separated from Ali by the group, even shunned in Africa by his friend. Then, in the midst of a public speaking event, Malcolm is gunned down by planted assassins hidden within the audience. His death leaves the African-American community all the poorer and desperate for leadership, sending a very clear message, speak up and you die. Thomas Arlington, my fictional character, has his roots in Malcolm, a deeply frustrated man who desperately wanted to do the right thing by his people. In real life, Malcolm mellowed a little near the end. There is a repeatedly leaned upon dichotomy between him and King, making out the latter to be a 100% paragon pacifist and the former to be in favor of violent uprising. The reality is King also knew all too well what kind of vicious, monstrous enemies of peace he was up against. Both men suffered before they were taken from us. After these two are murdered at different points of the film, Ali himself is shown reeling from the loss and the streets that he's in are shot in a handheld, almost newsreel style, putting you right there in the moment. The fact that this is supposed to be decades ago is immaterial, it is raw, and the people are hurting and outraged. It feels like a film that could be made three years from now. Such is its uncompromising, unflinching surety of grim, unjust reality. A world hyper-controlled by frightened men who will do whatever they need to maintain that control. Eventually, Ali himself is so outspoken that the Nation of Islam expels him too. The distancing himself from American control seems to suit him a lot better than all of the rules that go with this particular organization. Repeatedly, we are shown Ali is under CIA surveillance. White-shirted G-men, ironically the kind that Will Smith played just years earlier by in that fantastical alien wrangling men in black. They want to know what Ali is saying quietly. The fear is always on anger and growing resentment in the inner cities. And Washington, J. Edgar Hoover, the powers that be want to ensure nothing too dangerous to their status quo might happen. This film is two decades old and it's fearless and painfully relevant. Watched in conjunction with Black Klansmen and Defy Bloods, this feels like part of a collective statement on how the odds are stacked against black people then and now. They're even edited in a similar style. 
And while I'm talking about the African-American experience here, this can apply to many people of color in America. When I was little, I tore out this picture of Emmett Till. They put the barbed wire around his neck and strapped him to that 75-pound cotton gin fan. And they cut out, cut out one of his eyes, you know, because he looked at some white lady. Man. I couldn't take my eyes to it, couldn't throw it away. When I heard about those four little girls and got bombed at that Birmingham church. The prohibitions of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad prevented me from speaking my thoughts and action. Because Birmingham was part of the civil rights struggle, you know, begging for a place at the white man's table. But dead children are dead children. So the anger I felt I had to contain I locked it up so tight, my muscles seized. I lost control over the right side of my body. My leg gave out. Right arm gave out. I'm having a stroke, I thought. But I had to hold it in, because all I wanted, brother, all I wanted to do was find something and break it. Break apart, break any part of this system, because you are so provoked in your heart and your spirit as a human being at dead children and I could do nothing everyone knows I can't do nothing anymore So Elijah Muhammad has suspended me as a minister in the nation of Islam. Man, you, you can fix that. I don't know. I'll try when we get back. Some rest, champ. All right, brother. But let live everybody. Live life for the children. Live life for the children. Oh, for the children. You see, let's let's save the children. Let's, let's save all the children. Save the babies. Jamie Foxx plays Bundini Brown, a big talker and self-proclaimed sports guru who kind of latched onto Ali and did help him by remaining in his corner. He also develops a heroin addiction and, in his own words, sells the champ's belt for $500, which he then puts into his arm. And Ron Silver plays Angelo Dundee, Ali's fight trainer, who meticulously arranges his tools of the trade before every fight, ensuring that he has every implement for the injuries his fighter is about to receive. He's understated and generous in his performance, always ensuring the spotlight is on Smith. Ron Silver died fairly recently, it's a 
sadly missed. I'm called Bundini. Rhymes with Moody. He was a Jew, too. Some people call me Fast Black, some call me Daddy Mac. Gave Sugar Ray Robinson my power for seven years. My voodoo, my magic. Now Shorty done sent me here to work for you. Who's Shorty? I call him Shorty. I call him Shorty because he like him circumcised, original people, like Moses. And I was a babe in a basket too. Born on a doorstep with a note across my chest that read, you do the best you can for him, world. I want to be your inspiration. You're motivated in your corner. Can I be in your corner, young man? Ali also romances three women in this film, and I do mean romances. Sonji Ray, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, who ends up leaving because the strict Muslim way of life drives her up the wall. Then there's Belinda Boyd, who's a woman who accepts a lot more of this lifestyle and seems fairly dutiful. She says uh, at the beginning that he came to her school and she had a little, a long ponytail. And it's, it's, it's a, that seems a little bit creepy because it's almost like, well, you're all grown up now. And like, oh God. <laughs> I was think when when we were watching it again it's last night. It's a little night, bit Rex Manning. It's a little <laughs> bit, but the fact that he doesn't he doesn't recognise her to begin with, mm-hmm. and hasn't had any contact with her between then and now. That's true. It doesn't yeah. have that overtones of she's been groomed to be the champ's girl or anything like that. Do you want to talk about memoirs of a geisha? Because you said we couldn't talk, do a whole show on it, but there's this one aspect. You could talk about it now for five minutes and get what you need to get said. Honestly, I don't think I'd even need five minutes, but okay, it is the it. complete antithesis of this. The The whole precept of the the film from the perspective of... Uh, it's the, largely the, Chinese the cast. ...the geishas um, <laughs> uh, character arc is that she meets the, the chairman, played by Ken Watanabe. Let and, them fight. I mean... Ken Watanabe is a gorgeous guy. Oh, yeah. But she meets him as a very young child. She's like she's 12. She's 12. Yep. And basically he buys her an decides, ice cream. Yeah, he des- she decides at that point that she adores him so much and is so moved by his kindness that she wants to work really hard to be a really good geisha so that one day he can hire her. I'm going to be the best geisha that ever there was. Absolutely. She wants to get into the world that he is a part yeah. of. And it, it drives everything she chooses to do after that point. And instead of it... Instead of her instead reaching... Instead of it being about her finding a way to gain some control and determination over her life, in this environment where women were allowed very little of either, mm. you find out in the like the closing scenes when she finally gets to be with him that he manipulated and pulled the strings on the whole thing in the first place because he sent somebody he knew from the geisha world to go and mentor her and, and raise her to be a good girl. And that's grooming. That is grooming. Yeah. 
And I was like, well, you know, maybe if it's written by a Japanese woman, then there'd, there'd be some sense if of authenticity been, if it had been to this thing. From the perspective of somebody who'd actually been through that kind of experience, the novel it's based on was written by a Jewish American man. Yeah. Who admittedly interviewed a geisha. <gasps> he interviewed a geisha once? Yeah. Well, no, I was, as in he had a series of interviews with her and that was the basis Listen, of the I novel. interviewed a tiger. But, <laughs> but that's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, Belinda is uh, differently portrayed than that. She, yes. she takes uh, Ali, body and soul, and all of this religion that he... Um, uh, the, the doctrine that gets heaped upon her, and she's like, okay, I'll do that, I'll, I'll cover my head, I'll, do, you know, I'll be this kind of wife for you. And it's illustrative that that would never really have been enough. For starters, it would appear she was a Muslim already, thus the basis of a lot of the attraction since it didn't work out with Sanji. He starts wondering later on in the film as well, like, you know, and they have a big drawn out fight because he's now seen an absolutely gorgeous third lady uh, named Veronica Portia. And uh, he, didn't he end up divorcing Belinda he did, as well? He then... divorced Belinda and married Veronica yeah. um, like a year later, but he'd already had multiple affairs by that point yeah. as well. Uh, Veronica was definitely not the first infidelity with Belinda. See, this is what the golden age of Hollywood Hollywood do, that, that the whole, you know, the passionate lover and you know, bouncing from one person to the other. And it's it's ultimately, this is, a, I think it's portrayed in the film as a flaw and a character mm. oh, witness. Absolutely. That he's, it's, it, he's, he's addicted to romance he, rather he than... He is. He is absolutely addicted to romance. He finds it very, very difficult to sustain uh, long-term relationships and he leaves a sizable degree of wreckage in his wake yeah. in that sense. A lot of hurt women. Though. I really do appreciate though the the focus on his marriage to Belinda Boyd and as I say she changed her name later to Carly Ali um, but they he, she seems to be one of the people who gets the most uh, authentic response from him in a lot of cases that he just is he almost seems confused in places by what is expected from him in this relationship mm -hmm. because it's it's an area of his life that has had so little attention and it is so difficult for him to put the pieces together of how you relate to somebody in that circle he can't fight her he can't he can't use his gift of the gab with her. Yeah. All of his uh, yeah. To his credit, he never like he is never like devastating to these women in a way that like just like verbally taking them down. He argues with them the way that just regular people would argue. Mm. But that means that all the things that he considers himself to be particularly gifted and skilled at, he can't use in that context. Mm. And it's. She seems to be the person who is also the most concerned about his well-being. Yeah. And I really liked the way that that was put across, that she is, almost as soon as they're married, she starts questioning, is he safe from the CIA? Uh, he needs better, you know, they've, they've, they're broke at this point and they've essentially been abandoned by the Nation of Islam. Mm. And she wants him to have people around him who can look after him and protect him. She worries about him getting hurt in the ring. She worries about the the promoters and the managers that he surrounds himself with who are ridiculously shallow and only interested in him in as much as what he can provide for them. What did she say about Don King? Don King talks black, lives white, and thinks green. That right? Mm. Yeah. 
She's the only person who basically calls Don King on his bullshit until Ali eventually shouts him down himself. Yeah, because she's coming at this from a position of, I am not in the least bit interested about the fame that this world provides, about the victory that you get in a fight. It's not even like uh, Tessa Thompson's portrayed in Creed where she's really concerned and worried about him, but ultimately does get caught up in the enthusiasm and the victory. The only expression I ever see from Belinda at the end of a fight is relief. Thank God he's walking out of this one alive. If this was any other fictional boxing film, he ends up patching things up with Belinda, but that didn't happen in real life, which makes it feel complicated and messy and realistic. It didn't even last with Veronica. He wasn't married to her for for more than a few years. I never said it did. Mm. It's just that the camera stops rolling. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. Isn't it when you? It when doesn't do that thing where it just goes. Ali then went to this wife. Then he went to this yeah. wife. Um, <laughs> it just seems like having monogamy handed to him was kind of like all the rest of the shit that didn't really fit with his life and the way that he worked. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't detract from the fact that what he did was hurtful, and in some cases, you know, really kind of devastating to the uh, to the women. There's a point after Sanji leaves that he goes back to a, a, a the bedroom and then just finds her red dress and just kind of like kneels down and holds it and I thought that's a really sweet like way of showing that he didn't mean for this breakage to happen like this and he feels bad about it. Unfortunately it also did remind me of Tommy Wiseau in, in the, the room, room. Mm. fucking that red dress. Ah! Ah Lisa why? <laughs> No. That's not Michael Mann's fault, though. No, I know, I know. My guess is Tommy Rizzo saw that, and that's the only bit of the film that he focused on. Maybe he caught it on TV once. Maybe just enough time that Tommy saw it on uh, on on DVD um, that night before he came in. It was like, yes, get the red dress. I'm going to fuck it. Anyway. Ali was a highly technical fighter. He would plan his strategy out, oftentimes explaining it to reporters before the fight, telling the crowd what they should be watching out for, explaining his observations of his opponent's strengths and weaknesses. If who he was up against was slow and powerful, Ali would dance around, clowning, provoke attacks but keep out of the way, jabbing with his long reach and his opponent would wear themselves out chasing him until he could get a good flurry of hits in on a man running low on stamina. If they were faster, he would dodge and roll. He had long, agile legs that he had absolute control over, which allowed him to keep his head back from jabs. If they were bruisers, he would defend as much as he could, pretty much inventing the rope-a-dope, which would utilize the ring itself as a way to remain flexible and prevent himself from getting caught in a corner and pummeled. How do you plan to fight the fight, champ? Well, I plan to fight my new style. I, I want to announce here now the new style about landing a rope sometime. Let the man punch himself out. It is called the rope a dope. The rope a dope. Rope a dope. Who does the word dope honor? It honors whoever chases me in the rope. All right, that's the very point. What if Ron Lyle doesn't pursue you into the ropes? Ron what if he backs off? If he don't, then I'll just go under my defensive style, Howard, and move in and force him to punch. Watch this thing powerful tonight. 
You will notice how I'll completely wear this man down. Watch careful. You notice how when the bell rings, I'll walk right out and take a shot. I'll force him. I offer him a deal he can't refuse. Notice when I go to the roast, you see me cover up, blocking the vulnerable part, blocking the chin. I don't want no amateurs out there to try this because it's awful dangerous. You have to have fast reflexes. It takes 21 years experience to get away with this. But you will see me tonight literally take this man. He may win two or three rounds of the first five, but after five rounds, this man will power. He'll just be completely exhausted. And this is better than me jumping and dancing and running and wasting a lot of time, all this moving, trying to keep him getting hit, and he really can't hurt me. And so it's best to walk on in and let him take a shot and block him and block him. And knowing that in two or three rounds, he'll be completely tired. So you watch it. You be there. <laughs> we will. And after the man rang the bell, I'm going to jump on the rope and slap Coastal. <laughs> what he just did there in terms of stage magicians is the pledge. This is what I'm going to do. Watch closely. The middle of the film is beset by a significant moment in Ali's life. The war in Vietnam is raging and he is inducted and drafted to the US Army. He's black, as are 32% of the American troops fighting over there. Now this was an attempt to shut him up, move him away from America, and hopefully, considering the appalling casualty rate of this horrendous and ill-considered conflict, Ali would obligingly die in the sweltering jungle like so many of his kind. Instead, he refused the draft, publicly, angrily, and he had his license to fight revoked. No, man, I ain't never shot nothing in my life. No ducks, no geese, no deer, no nothing. Man, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Ain't no Viet Cong ever call me nigger. This was Ali's prime. The world was robbed of matchups that could have made more history. But in effect, America and the world got so much more than just entertaining boxing matches. More than a sportsman doing what he did best, beating people up in the ring and making a lot of rich white people richer. What America got was a hero, an example. Someone who took a stand against tyranny. Someone who exposed this heartless system and for his courage and resolve, he was called unpatriotic by a government that wanted to kill him. They are afraid of black militancy in the inner cities. The Panthers are making them nervous and the fact that an abused population descended from the victims of kidnapping and slavery had absolutely every right to be angry, to rise up against their oppressors, forms the basis of this abiding cultural fear. Told you I wasn't fucking around on this one, folks. You understand what's at issue is your license to fight Terrell in Illinois? Yes. Then are you prepared to apologize about your unpatriotic remarks about the war? No. No? You say you're the people's champion. Yes, sir. Do you think you're acting like the people's champion? Yes, sir. I'm not going to apologize to you. This is not a courtroom, and I do not have to sit here and answer your questions. Right off, 
Are you gonna dodge the draft? I ain't draft dodging, I ain't burning no flag, and I ain't running to Canada. I'm staying right here. You wanna send me to jail? Fine, you go right ahead. I've been in jail for 400 years. I could be there for four or five more. But I ain't going no 10,000 miles to help murder and kill other poor people. If I wanna die, I'll die right here, right now, fighting you. If I wanna die, you my enemy. Not no Chinese, no Viet Cong, no Japanese. You my poser when I want freedom. You my poser when I want justice. You my poser when I want equality. Want me to go somewhere and fight for you? You won't even stand up for me right here in America. For my rights and my religious beliefs. You won't even stand up for me right here at home. Which car you want to go first? Tell Clay he can get on after me. I'm in jail. What? I said you can get on after me. No, what you call me? I called you Clay. You will announce it from right here, from flat on your back. What's my name? What's my name? What's my name? You don't say my name. You don't say my name. Your mama fucked me. I'm gonna call you Clay. I want you all to tell all their aunts and all their uncles and cousins and friends, get to your television set, get to your radio, because I have never wanted to whoop a man so bad. So what we get for this midsection is a lot of waiting and a lot of tension and Ali wondering what the hell he's going to do. What are people going to allow him to do? Can he talk his way back into fighting legitimately? Luckily for us, the viewer, we can enjoy the real-life antagonistic relationship with sports journalist Howard Cosell. He is played by rotten right-wing shit-snack John Voigt, but luckily the performance is so chameleonic that we actually can't even see Voigt in there. You know, so I went down there, I did everything I was supposed to do, and I flunked a draft board test. Then, without testing me again to see if I'm any wiser or worser, they decide I can go in the army? Cassius and my My name ain't Cassius Clay, that is a slave name, and I am a free man. I am Muhammad Ali. You know, I apologize. I apologize to you on the air. Your name is Muhammad Ali. You have a right to be called whatever you want. I apologize to you. You sure make a lot of mistakes for a so-called educated man. You really went to law school? Yes, Muhammad. And to think I gave up a lucrative practice for the likes of you. I'm the best thing ever happened to you, Cosell. Without me, you'd be a tall white man with a microphone in his mouth. And without me, you'd be a mouth. At this point, Ali reaches across and lifts up the front of Cosell's wig. We'll be right back. You want some food for that I, thing? How could you do such a thing? Because it's funny. To someone you would... Revere. That thing almost bit my finger Mr. off. Mr. <laughs> Bundini, I, I'm glad you were here to witness this, this assault. <laughs> Have a little coffee with you, sugar. They're coming after you because they're scared of black militancy in the inner cities. I ain't no H-Rap Brown. I ain't no Stokely Carmichael. All they are is political. You're the heavyweight champion of the world. He is Cosell, speaking with that trademark slow pace and thoughtful arrangement of words to both engage and excite. I sound more like Timon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you turn your back on the world. 
as an out-of-the-ring opponent for Ali, he may have been one of the only matches for that wit. And even then, it was just a well-judged hit landed here and there. But while he wasn't allowed to fight, Ali went on various interviews explaining to the nation that he wasn't allowed to fight and that their own leaders were stopping everyone from seeing the greatest fight they ever did see. Man, if they came to me tomorrow and they say, we want you to fight Joe Frazier, Madison Square Garden, millions and millions of dollars, here's your license back, I will tell them I will never fight again. Frankly, Mohammed, I'm surprised because unless you or until you fight Frazier. Cosell, there are, people are you who losing are... your hearing along with your hair? Don't put no question to it, man. I done told you I'm through fighting. I got a much bigger contender, a much heavier opponent. I'm fighting the entire U.S. government. Do you think you're going to jail? I don't know. I don't know. Joe Frazier told me on this show that he could knock you out. See, there you go agitating. You should have asked Smoking Joe, what have he been smoking? That boy even dreamed he whooped me, he better wake up and apologize. But if I ever was to get in the ring with Joe, here's what you might see. Ali comes out to meet Frazier, but Frazier starts to retreat. If Joe goes back an inch farther, he'll wind up in a ringside seat. Ali swings with his left, Ali swings with his right. Just look at the kid carry the fight. Frazier keeps backing, but there's not enough room. It's only a matter of time before Ali lowers the boom. Ali swings with his right. What a beautiful swing, but the punch lifts Frazier clean out of the ring. Frazier's still rising, and the referee wears a frown, because he can't start counting till Frazier comes down. Frazier's disappeared from view. The crowd is getting frantic, but our radar station's done picked him up. He's somewhere over the Atlantic. Now, who would have thought when they came to the fight, they was going to witness the launching of a black satellite? But don't wait for that fight. It ain't never going to happen. Only thing you could do is wonder and imagine. This has been another sports exclusive from ABC. Over to Jim McKay and Baron Switzerland. How are you going to go from me to Jim McKay? Did your wife leave you yet? No, she hasn't left me yet. Well, she's she's going to, because I told your wife when I seen her, I said, listen, why are you doing this to yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, though, through pushing and pushing, Ali did get to face Frazier. And this is where man's vision goes light on significance. This was dubbed the fight of the century. And Joe won after 15 rounds, fair and square. Not just one, this was an astonishing and aptly named fight which pitted two undefeated champions against each other. Ali lost for a number of valid reasons, but the film kind of brushes past that with ominous music, illustrating that this was painful and humiliating, and despite its grueling length, it's very short in the film. It's like a really quick, horrible hangover but one that poses more of a threat to his abilities to come back from this. He, he keeps being told he's past his prime, that he can't continue this, he can't come back to, to, do, to be as good as he ever was before, that he's lost this, that it's been taken from him, which obviously causes him great consternation. That original fight was 1971, and Ali and Frazier would come back later for rematches in Super Fight 2 in January 74, which Ali won after 12 rounds. 
and after the events of this film, the thriller in Manila in 75. From the sounds of it, the first fight and the third fight, those were the serious ones. Those both went 15 rounds, originally Frazier won, and then in Manila, Ali won. The one in the middle, less of an event, kind of a disappointment. It had its moments. However, in the film Ali in 1973, before their second fight, their rematch, which was mostly about Ali reclaiming some dignity rather than actually any kind of championship, Frazier gets knocked out in a subsequent match by a young bruiser named George Foreman. That puts Ali on a road to fighting Foreman in Act 3 of this film in October of 74. Organized by shady wordsmith Don King, played with frightening, snake-like energy by Michael T. Williams. The Rumble in the Jungle. That is the name that I've given it. Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in Kinshasa, Zaire. Don, Zaire? Yeah, Don, I mean, why not Antarctica or something like that? What's wrong with New York City? Because you missed the significance. See, I dream of overcoming 400 years of racial depression to the dawn of a new day of liberation, financial and otherwise. It will raise up the spirits of our inner cities. It will rise up and fill with hope the souls, the unrequited needs of the black proletariat. That is the discouraged, dispirited, denigrated denizens of the Dimamon that is called the ghetto. Man, Don, you crazy. <laughs> you must have studied the whole D section of the dictionary. <laughs> and the despotic president of Zaire, buddies with the last king of Scotland, Idi Amin, Joseph Mobutu. This guy was lethal and crazed and ran his nation from the tyrant's playbook. Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il, Pol Pot, Papa Doc Duvalier, all these fucking assholes. This is the kind of self-appointed god on earth that I truly despise. An undeveloped man-child who rules by fear suffers an appalling overabundance of vanity, wants his picture on every wall, and has absolutely no problem hurting and killing and disappearing those who might speak out against him. The kind of guys that Trump was taking notes from. We need to move beyond them as a species. Never let them get a toehold. You want Immortan Joes? That's how you get Immortan Joes. But this fight, this epic final battle in Ali, Act 3, was called the Rumble in the Jungle, and maybe the most amazing boxing match ever conducted. There's a documentary from 1996 which is absolutely worth watching as an accompaniment to this called When We Were Kings, which is interviews with everybody relevant, apart from Ali, it would appear, <laughs> and it covers the Rumble in the Jungle and all the music that was played. and. It captures that moment in time. Zaire in 1974 was hot and sweaty, colorful and alive with anticipation, filled with music and chatter, but dangerous and restrictive in its way. I imagine Chadwick Boseman performing as James Brown, who was there. Johnny Depp as Hunter S. Thompson reporting on the fight. Forrest Whitaker as Idi Amin watching from Mobutu's castle. This is a nexus point in history. It's where all biopics converge. <laughs> The doc, When We Were Kings, is a slice of history and it illustrates the truth of what we're seeing here. It clearly inspired man to make this film a few years later. And the fact that Smith was available and in his prime to take the role is one of cinematic perfection of elements. Like all of these things just slotted into place. But it feels like Ali 
because of everything we've been talking about, how is this not hugely relevant right now? How is it not being watched and watched and watched? It's not available on Blu-ray anywhere. I had to go to Germany to get this shit in HD. Not literally, as in you ordered it from Germany. Yeah. <laughs> but I would have gone to Germany <laughs> if they'd made me. It is available on DVD in the UK and there's a director's cut in America which I haven't seen and I will track down that kind of tightens it up a little, focuses more on the CIA surveillance, takes away Ali fighting this white journeyman who ends up just conceding the fight somewhere in the middle of it. The midsection by design has a kind of what are we doing with this going on with the movie because Ali wants to fight and no one will let him. Just to uh, go back briefly to When We Were Kings, is that the one with sections where Ali actually plays himself in fictionalised no. recreations of it? That is the greatest. Okay. That's a, I feel a film like where that, he plays himself as yeah, well. Yeah, that was also, I think, a strong influence yeah, on this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do mention it later on, but I will reiterate. There is a film called The Greatest where Ali plays himself in kind of a, a younger version of himself. It's almost like... It's a 1977 biographical sports film, so this would have been three years after the Rumble in the Jungle. And it follows his life from 1960 in the Summer Olympics to his regaining the heavyweight crown from Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle in 74. So it does so, yeah. cover a similar time period. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Although obviously the focus is a different. But I mean, honestly, I don't think you can get too much Ali. I'd say... No! If you haven't seen any of these, watch Ali. Watch them all. Watch When We Were Kings, watch The Greatest and then watch as many interviews as you can with him because it's one thing to see Will Smith deliver this stuff. It is another thing again to watch Ali deliver it with that total conviction. Bad, been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right, I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Man, dude. Bad. Fast. 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 Last night, I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. In 2020, I started writing the book I've been meaning to for years and incorporated so many sharp elements that I have admired from watching and studying this film. News footage of Ali, fight deconstructions, interviews, when we were kings, the greatest. I used elements of all of these as building blocks to inject the panther in Panther Soul with the fire that he needed to come bursting out of him. It's my attempt to honor the man and the best things he represented, his attempts to get by in the world until the tyranny of its rulers can no longer be ignored and has to be faced up to. I write this because these things give me strength to carry on now. This inspiration keeps me going and I want to be able to run that through a lens of fantasy and abstraction to be able to examine my own motivations and what drives me by examining what somebody extraordinary achieved with the time that was given to them. The time they could hold on to. 
To date, most of the lead heroes in my books have been female as a means to address the appallingly unequal gender disparity in adventure and sci-fi stories. It's rarely the spotlights on them. So if I was going to put a guy front and center, I had to make him someone so irresistible that it would legitimize the very idea of telling a story about a dude for a change. It wound up being maybe my favorite and maybe my most personal book. And I think a lot of that comes down to how long I have lived with this film and what it means to finally be able to channel this energy. Courage, integrity, empathy, laughter, inspiration, awe, and immense respect. And yeah, that is the theme I'm using for Panther Soul. More significantly, I feel after watching this film again for this very podcast, that it isn't the match at the end. The fight is astonishing. There is a tension leading up to it regarding whether Ali, now 32, is past his prime, off his game. Whether he has what it takes to beat Foreman, who you get to see um, Ali comes in uh, to a, a gym where Foreman's training and Foreman's just like pounding this sandbag just uh, uh, and it's like oh I really don't want to get my ribs near that and you can see like uh, it was mentioned in um, When We Were Kings that Ali didn't look at Foreman all that much because he didn't want to build up this demon in his head as this impossible mountain to, to overcome he wanted to just talk big call him the mummy <laughs> Just say he was too slow and, and, and that Foreman was scared to fight him and then that was that was the reality of things. The champ is here! Ladies and gentlemen, the heavyweight champion of the world has arrived! The champ is here! The champ is here! The champ is here! Yeah, they, the other thing they said in When We Were Kings was that Foreman did this on purpose, that he used to train with the heavy bag in front of his opponents so that they could see him beating dents into it. Yeah, so that they'd dream about it, so that they'd wake up going, oh shit, no, get away, Foreman. Which does seem very antithetical to the fact that apparently Foreman was a really nice guy, especially yeah. after this fight. Yeah. It's intimately filmed, this whole Zaire section. And... In the Rumble in the Jungle itself, you feel the hits and the pain and you experience what it's like to be Ali in the ring against a man who punches sandbags with the slow, methodical slam of a traction engine. And you get to feel for George as Ali snatches every opportunity he can, digging as deep as possible in order to finally topple this immense tree. 
but it's an earlier sequence that has the true impact and makes the hardest statement of the movie. After training and running at the beginning of the film in his own American neighborhood, badgered by police, asking, where you running to, boy? Just like driving up behind him while he's running, and he doesn't answer. Like, that never struck me before, but ultimately he's supposed to turn around and go, I ain't running from nobody, sir, I'm just doing my training so I can entertain y'alls in the ring. That's what they want him to say. But the police are shown to be doing this because the police in America are descended from squads of white men rounded together to go out and brutally hunt runaway slaves because that has never been addressed and fixed in America. And now we're faced with the consequences. Plus, for good measure, they're armed with decades worth of military surplus and they all want to be pretend soldiers with zero accountability or legal ramifications. Multiple entire cultures have been living with the consequences for the better part of a century and a half. They know about it, now white people know. But in this third act, Ali now runs the streets of Zaire, a nation ruled by a despot, who the very night of that particular fight, this isn't mentioned in the film, but it is mentioned in When We Were Kings, Mobutu had every suspected criminal in the city hunted down and imprisoned without trial so that there wouldn't be any kind of fuss because the cameras were on and he wanted his nation to look good. Bear in mind that when you're a tyrannical dictator, the definition of criminal can get pretty fucking loose. The folks in Zaire that we see are a people under serious oppression and Ali runs now with them. And they chant, Ali, Bumaye, Ali, Bumaye, meaning kill him, meaning Foreman, Ali, kill him. And you can't help but feel sorry for Foreman in real life for that. Yeah, he heard that over and over again. That this, they were in Zaire for a long time preparing. There were a lot of delays. Foreman got injured above his eye. There was bad weather. It just, they kept putting it off and putting it off. And there was a lot of tension as to, is this thing even going to finally fucking happen? I'ma hit George Foreman so many times he gonna think he's surrounded. He gonna say, call the police! It's five of them in here! So George, obviously, was like, I don't wanna be here, these people fucking hate me. I am here to be the villain for their hero to kill. And Ali himself was suffering all kinds of anxiety, he just wanted to get this done. All them ladies out there, they know. They know I'm ready. I see fear in the eyes of his followers. I see fear. This was supposed to be the fight that Muhammad Ali was ended. Supposed to be the myth that Muhammad was gonna fall. Supposed to be my destruction. Well, they miscalculated. They misjudged. They got it wrong. But he was that hero. Ali is different from Foreman to these people. They know that he stood up to his own tyrannical, murderous government. And he drew a line. And he said, no, I will not cross this line, and you cannot make me. This is inspiring beyond words. And as Ali runs, Michael Mann's camera stays with him in an intimate way, just stays on his face as he's looking around, and we get to see what's going on in his mind. He never says a word, but he's seeing what we can see. It's a lens that showed us this quiet, troubled, torn young pugilist trying to work out how to be, which version of himself to show. His public face, 
The lyrical loudmouth who makes reporters and crowds laugh. His angry face. The one that cannot contain its disgust for the nation he was raised in that betrays him at every step. The dancer. The poet. The warrior. Or just Ali on his own. When we get him not saying anything, we get what feels like a deeply personal portrait of this guy just from Will Smith's looks just from the context of what has happened and what we're seeing him go through there are so many shades of Ali in this film and Smith just plays each one of them so perfectly but what Ali sees on the walls as the kids in particular run along with him hero worshipping him like shadow boxing at him playing with him is their artistic depictions of him killing George fighting planes, destroying tanks with his fists. He is, in essence, to them, a real, live superhero. An example of someone who can achieve, despite everything set against them, a fighter brave enough to stand up to the most intimidating, unbeatable opponents. When this film ends, at the close of the eighth round, the rain starts falling and Tomorrow by Salif Keita plays once again as it did during the running scene, tying these two moments together the way that memory gospel ties together the poetry of his motion and the poetry of his poetry. The crowd gathered around, roaring in triumph, sees their hero victorious, battered, but still proud as the African rain storms down it is one of the most magical moments in cinema for me, eclipsing the slow motion last moves of the rumble itself. Both men fought magnificently. Foreman later came to be philosophical about his defeat. Both were legends, but Muhammad Ali became more than that. He became the greatest.
School of Movies is supported by you folks on Patreon and the $15 tier get name checked every week. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Solguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. 